0: seated, please turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we will be reading, we'll be focusing on verses uh, 9 through 12, but I will be reading to you uh, verses 3 through 14, just to give a little bit of the, the context surrounding it, because it can be difficult to jump into a text and that you haven't been focusing on as a church. You may think, I don't know what's going on here. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, I will read verses 3 through 14, and like I said, we'll focus on verses 9 through 12. Give your attention to God's word as it is read in the midst of his people. for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. And I forgot to turn my mic on. Thank you. I'm not sure if it's on. It's on, alrighty. Wonderful. Well as we begin, um, in the year 1521, Martin Luther was put on trial by the state rulers of Germany at what has been called the Diet of Worms. He had already been excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church because of his 95 Theses and other pamphlets that he had written. The Pope at the time had tried to silence Luther. When he failed, he called on the Emperor of Germany to silence Luther. And so, this is the Diet of Worms that had come to be. It was a trial to try to get Luther to stop causing a ruckus. He was asked whether he would recant all that he had published that stood in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. And he tried to talk around it. He tried to say, well, I'm not totally sure, And And he knew that if he gave a direct refusal to recant, this could mean his own death. So he didn't want to give a straight answer, but the emperor demanded a simple answer. His answer is well known and maybe you know it. He said, if the emperor desires a plain answer, I will give it to him. It is impossible for me to recant unless I am proved to be wrong by the testimony of scripture. My conscience is bound to the word of God. It is neither safe nor honest to act against one's conscience. Here I stand, God help me, I cannot do otherwise. So Martin Luther demonstrates something that is quite relevant to our passage. He shows us what it looks like to be convicted about something and because of that, unwilling to back down. His thoughts have been transformed to understand the mercy of God in the gospel. And so he says that his conscience is captive to the word of God. To put it differently, what Martin Luther knew about God completely changed how he lived. So much so that he was willing to die in order to please God. He was not willing to compromise on anything if that meant living in a way that displeased God. Thankfully he was not executed. It was planned that he would be executed, but he went into hiding and continued to work on reforming the church and uh that sparked, the, it continued to reform the church, and uh, we're thankful for that. But when Paul is writing to Colossians, he's concerned with how the knowledge that the Colossians has, uh, their knowledge of God, affects what they do. So before we go any further, I'd like to give you a bit of the context of Colossians. I've read the passage uh, in its entirety, but there's some things that are mentioned, um, and so there seems to be some type of false teaching in the church that has to do with Christ's divinity. Christ's divinity is the central focus of the book of Colossians. Paul is over and over and over again coming to Christ's divinity. The specifics of this false teaching though, are unclear. There's varying ideas. This could be some type of Gnosticism, which simply means that um, uh, it's a view of our reality where the, the spiritual life is what really matters and our earthly life doesn't really matter that much that there's a division between Christ's divinity and humanity maybe that's what's going on there's could be other sorts of philosophies uh, pagan philosophies going on there could be false teachings uh, about Christ in some other way or just maybe even it's uh, an error of trying to bring this church toward uh, focusing and relying too much on the flesh in a Judaizing way so whatever the error was it seems to be something that diminished the magnitude of who Christ is. And so Paul brings the focus back to the glory of Christ throughout this letter. At the beginning of chapter one, he greets the Colossians and then gives thanks for their faith and their love. In verses three through eight, Paul tells the Colossian church that he and Timothy are thankful for their faith in Jesus, which is revealed in the gospel. We also learn that the church in Colossae was established by Epaphras. And so in verses nine through 12, where we're focusing, Paul further explains how he is thankful by telling the Colossians that just as he is always thanking God for them, as he had done in verse 3, he is always praying for them. So the primary content of Paul's prayer is that the Colossian church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for the purpose of pleasing God in every way. So as we consider this passage, there's one way where we could take it and we could say, oh, Paul's praying for the church back then. So he's praying for us, this church. I think that's a little too quick of a read on things. Instead, we could say that Paul was praying for the Colossian church, and while he was doing so, he was modeling prayer for them, and so we can take that as a model of prayer for us. So as uh, they prayed for the Colossian church, they modeled uh, prayer for them and for us. And so we could say that this passage is raising a significant question regarding prayer, as it should. It should make us wrestle with how we pray. And the question is, do you pray that your life would be pleasing to God in every way? This is, the, I believe, the central question we should be asking as we examine uh, this passage of prayer. We will consider this as we move throughout the passage We can learn how to pray that our life would be pleasing to God by considering two ideas. The knowledge of God's will and the marks of a God-pleasing life. So we seek to answer, do you pray that your life would be pleasing to God in every way? And then we reflect on the knowledge of God's will and the marks of a God-pleasing life. So as we begin to consider this question, I think it would be helpful to take some time to look at what Paul means when he says, filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This will help us orient ourselves to understanding what Paul sees as important for living in a way that is pleasing to God. The foundational idea is knowing God's will. So when we come across the phrase filled with the knowledge of his will, we might want to think of this like being filled with a cup of water. We see the word filled and we think, oh yes, I'm filling a cup of water. That's kind of where the connection is. But that's a very basic idea of what Paul the word filled means, but there's a different, slightly different idea that's being communicated here because he's using the word metaphorically because he's talking about um, a certain characteristic. In case you didn't know, knowledge is not a physical thing that you can just take and put inside of you. It's a a characteristic, a quality that uh, is embodied by us. For example, uh, when this word is used with other qualities such as joy, peace, or goodness, or in our case, knowledge. The idea is that a a person is characterized by that. They are a joyful person, a peaceful person, a good person. In our case, we are a person that embodies that we know God's will. And so when Paul tells the Colossians that he prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, he is saying that he desires and prays that they would truly demonstrate that they know God's will. He's not concerned with the matter of simply obtaining information. Knowing God's will is not just acquiring abstract ideas or a group of ideas. But it's more than that. So Paul doesn't just pray that the Colossians uh, would have more knowledge. He's not asking that they would have more information about God and his will. There are plenty of nominal Christians who would claim to know something about God's will, and yet their life doesn't reflect it. There are even plenty of atheists who would be proud to tell you, if you ask them, that they've read through the Bible cover to cover, maybe even a couple times. But they're still atheists. In fact, James 2.19 reminds us that even the demons believe in God and they shudder, but they're still demons, meaning they know God's will, and yet they continue to hate him and work against his purposes. So simple knowledge is not enough. We cannot rationalize our way to properly know God's will. We need the help of his spirit. We must be filled with this knowledge by God himself. And at this point you may be asking, okay, but what specifically do you mean when you say God's will? You've been talking about God's will, but what exactly, what does that mean? It's common to be overwhelmed by that two-word phrase, and I know plenty of people personally who get quite bent out of shape trying to figure out God's will for their life. In every single minor detail, uh, you know, they wake up in the morning. Is it God's will for my life to drink coffee this morning? Is it God's will for my life to, uh, when I'm going to church, should I, or when I'm going to work, should I take a right this way, or should I take this way? They, they get all bent out of shape trying to figure out God's will for their life. So what do I mean when I speak about God's will? What does the Bible mean when it talks about God's will? I think there are two primary categories that are important to uh, distinguish. These are categories that theologians speak of when they talk about God's will. They will either speak of God's will of decree, which theologians call his decretive will, or secondly, they talk about God's will of precept, which theologians call God's perceptive will, preceptive will. So God's will of decree, the first category, is simply God willing and ordaining thus decreeing all things that happen. It's his upholding all things in the world. Anything that happens, happens in some sense because God has decreed it to happen. A good term for this, which we know, is providence. God upholds and sustains all things by the word of his power. There's nothing that does not exist or happen without God first decreeing that it would happen but we can't know the the fullness of God's providence. We don't know every detail of God's providence. We just know that things happen and that God has decreed that they would happen. But God's will of precept, on the other hand, is an extension of God's will of decree. It's what he has revealed to us. It's not his general will that upholds all things, but it's God specifically revealing to humans what things are pleasing to him and good for us. In other words... This is what God has clearly and specifically revealed to his people as what he wants them to do. He's revealed it in his Bible, in our Bible. God's will of precept is summarized well in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Westminster man, so I've got to go to the Shorter Catechism. Question and answer three. Question three says, what do the scriptures principally teach? The answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So what's God's will? What we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. It's that simple. And that's what's laid out in the scriptures. So when people consider God's will, they get confused and overwhelmed because they search out God's broader will of decree. They want to know why he has providentially done things, but he hasn't revealed those things. And so it's effectively meaningless to search out such things. But when we speak of searching out God's will, or in the case of this passage, being filled with the knowledge of God's will, we're speaking of what has been revealed to us in the Bible. So Paul has in mind that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which has been made abundantly clear to them, that they would be embodying, that they know what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of. I think that, in other words, Paul has the gospel in mind here, which is where there's this nice intersection of what's required and what we are to believe. The will of God which is abundantly clear to us is found in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified is the clearest expression of God's will. This is where God's will of decree and his will of precept meet in a beautiful way. Ephesians 1 verses 9 through 10 says this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. So so what he is talking about is to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is to be filled with the knowledge of the gospel. Remember, there are those who may have heard the gospel and still do not believe. Paul is not just praying for the Colossians to have a knowledge of God's will in a cold and distant sense. Paul says that he prays that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will. In what? He continues on, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is critical for seeking to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So our prayer to know God's will is not just to know what he has said, period. It's not just to be able to regurgitate Bible verses and catechism answers, But we pray to know God's will according to the wisdom and understanding that His Spirit gives us. We don't seek to know God's will or to understand it on our own understanding, but we seek to know it through the working of His Holy Spirit. We don't seek wisdom without the Lord. As we know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we can't even rightly know anything without the fear of the Lord. When the Bible speaks of wisdom as our passage mentions wisdom, I think it's important to remember that it most often understands wisdom as meaning the right application of the law of God to various situations. So the goal here is to understand the heart of the law and to apply it to the whole of your life by way of the gospel. In other words, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is to understand that the gospel is the foundation for every way that you obey the Lord. It is to apply the gospel to every circumstance in your life. Every time that your flesh tries to overtake you and drag you back into sinful habits, what do you do? Preach the gospel to yourself. You're no longer in the flesh. When someone cuts you off in traffic and all you want to do is yell at them and maybe even show them one of your fingers, remember that you are a new creation in Christ. You're not a slave to the flesh, but you are a slave to Christ. Every time that the devil lies to you or the world around you puts pressure on you to live according to its schemes, what do you do? You can think about maybe a public school teacher uh, who is working in a public school and they want to teach. this public school wants you to teach things that are contrary to the word of God. And in that situation, what do you do? Based on Paul's example here, you pray to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is to pray that the Lord would help you to apply the gospel to every area of life unto righteous obedience. When you apply the gospel to every circumstance of your life, Paul understands this to mean that the result is that you will live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. In other words, when you are filled with the knowledge of God's will, your life will be focused on pleasing him. It is to live for his glory and nothing else. When you are filled with the knowledge of God's will, you're equipped to recognize that your prayer must be focused on pleasing God. And so as we talk about this, you may hear me say these things and think that I've somewhat dodged important questions. You think, yes, I understand that I should live a life that is pleasing to God, but what does that mean? I get that principle, but how do I know that I'm doing it? Thankfully, Paul's model of prayer continues. It doesn't just leave us in the dark. Where Paul continues is where we get to our second point, which is the marks of a God-pleasing life. Paul tells us what it looks like to live in a manner that is fully pleasing to God with four distinct ideas across the end of verse 10 into the beginning of verse 12. These four ideas are as follows. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, and giving thanks to the Father. So first, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul moves smoothly from knowing God's will to a life that is pleasing to God to bearing fruit. It's a very smooth transition between these things. This is because the knowledge of God's will that is informed by the Holy Spirit is inevitably producing good works. The Holy Spirit is the rain that waters the God's will soil from which your good works grow. As we talk about bearing fruit in every good work, you might ask, well, what does that mean for this situation or that situation? What does it look like in my day-to-day life? How do I know that I'm bearing fruit? We're creatures that love very specific directions. When it comes to Christian living, we do not want abstract principles. We want practical and concrete direction. When we get in tough situations where we do not know what the best course of action would be, we want do's and don'ts. We want to know exactly what to do in every circumstance. Yet the Bible does not give us that. I think actually the Bible is far more helpful than that. In Galatians chapter 5, we get the famous list of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm sure many of you know this. fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think that Paul has these fruit in mind when he says bearing fruit in every good work. And so, every good work does not need to be spelled out for us because we have the fruit spelled out for us. So when we get in sicky situations and we do not quite understand how to respond, instead of asking the ambiguous, what would Jesus do? We should ask instead, what has Jesus done? And therefore, how has he called me to live because of what he has done? He has called us to live in a way that bears fruit in the spirit and so we ask instead, is this loving? Is this joyful? Is this peaceful? Is this patient? Every good work is because it is a branch bearing the fruit of the spirit. So second, Paul adds, increasing in the knowledge of God. This is flowing in the same vein as what has been previously mentioned And it is the opposite side of the same coin. In other words, increasing in the knowledge of God is a natural result of bearing fruit in every good work. When you bear fruit in every good work, you increase in the knowledge of God. Here's what this means. Maybe you struggle with a recurring sin that just keeps coming up over and over and over again. Maybe there's a certain website that you keep going to that you shouldn't be on. Maybe you have a really difficult time controlling your temper. Maybe you're really good at pulling, at putting other people down in order to make yourself look good. Whatever it is, when it comes up for what feels like the 300,000th time, and you confess to that person that you've sinned against, you expect wrath. Or maybe you just expect disappointment at this point because it's so common that the person you've sinned against has become dull, jaded, and they think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I." I know you sinned, you're forgiven. It kind of becomes routine. But maybe, in this situation, instead of receiving the reaction that you expect, you receive grace and forgiveness. You receive patience. The person who has been patient with you has communicated the gospel to you in a way that words can't easily express. Bearing fruit in every good work leads us toward a deeper and fuller understanding of God's character. It helps us to demonstrate God's grace to others so that they would know God's character better. So the third mark of a God-pleasing life is being strengthened with all power. Paul says in verse 11, "...being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy." It is amazing that Paul would include this in his list of what we are calling the marks of a God-pleasing life. What makes this so amazing? It's amazing because we might want to think that those who are living a God-pleasing life are already strengthened. They've been strengthened, and thus they move on to do wonderful things for the Lord. You might think, I'm surely not living a God-pleasing life. I'm not strong enough to do that. Because we look back in history at the greats. We look at Martin Luther like we did the beginning of this sermon. We look at others like John Calvin or Theodore Beza or John Knox, John Owen, or other recent figures, J. Gresham machin Cornelius Van Til, R.C. Sproul. We look at men like this and think, I could never be as strong and forceful as these men. Those guys must have really had something special about them. They were strong. They were able to go out and do things that the rest of us couldn't. And in one sense, yes, that is true. You will never be them. And you probably won't have as much impact as those men. But that's okay. That's honestly a good thing. It's okay because God is not calling all of his church to be those men. He's calling his church to be faithful to what they have been given. To be faithful in every circumstance of life and to be living in a way that is pleasing to him in every circumstance of life. Matthew Henry has a wonderful way of... tying things together to explain what it really means to be strengthened. He has a commentary on the whole Bible, and when he comments on this passage, he says, To be strengthened is to be furnished by the grace of God for every good work and fortified by that grace against every evil one. It is to be enabled to do our duty and still to hold fast our integrity. The Blessed Spirit is the author of this strength, for we are strengthened with might by his spirit in the inward man. It is by the power of the Spirit of God that we are strengthened. The world around us may want us to compromise on our beliefs, but we can't do that. We must be faithful to the Lord and to His Word. And we may think about this and say, man, that sounds really hard. How am I supposed to not compromise on things? How am I supposed to be strengthened in everything? Well, yes, it is hard. But God is not calling... His church to be strengthened by their own grit. He's not calling his church to continually pull themselves up by their bootstraps. He's calling his church to rely upon the Lord and his strength and not their own strength. Take Paul's own example. At the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul begins to boast. What does Paul boast about in 2 Corinthians 12? He boasts in his weakness. And he reminds us that Christ's grace is sufficient and Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. This is why Colossians one eleven has the passive voice being strengthened. And it is being strengthened according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words, it is being strengthened from God's glorious might. The strength comes from God's glorious might and not your own. It is by God's grace and it is for his own glory that he strengthens the church. And he does so for the purpose of endurance and patience with joy. The Lord strengthens his church in order that they would endure and be patient. And there are two kinds of responses that the church has historically had when it comes to trials that face the church. We either put our armor on and we go out and we want to fight the rest of the world or we build up our walls and hide out and say, I will let the world burn around me and I will be happy in my own little silo with my people. Both extremes are not what the Lord calls his church to do. He doesn't send us out in strength to be culture warriors. He doesn't strengthen the church's walls so that we can watch the world burn from a distance. No, he gives us strength for all endurance and patience with joy. This means that we are able to endure every trial because it is the Spirit of God giving us the strength to do so, and that with joy. Joy is not just an emotional experience. It is not simply that good feeling you get when you're in a particularly good mood. And it it may include that at times, but the foundation of joy is not in your emotions. Rather, it has its foundation in the resurrection of Christ. So joy is the constant state of knowing that all things will go well because your eternity is secure in Jesus Christ. Anything can happen to you and you will remain perfectly cradled in Christ's loving hands. To put it in shorter terms, joy is a full delight in God in every circumstance. Every circumstance. So lastly, our passage brings us to the fourth mark of a God-pleasing life, which is giving thanks to the Father. Paul prays that the Colossians would give thanks because of what God has done in Christ. He further explains what Christ has done and who Christ is in verses 13 through 20. Just a few verses above our passage, in verses 3 and 4, Paul and Timothy explain that they always give thanks to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now in verse 12, they are praying that the Colossians would give thanks. There's a parallel here. As Paul and Timothy give thanks to God for the Colossians having faith in Christ, so the Colossians should give thanks to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because of their salvation. We could talk about all the many, many things that we ought to thank God for. We could go on and on thanking him for the ways that he provides for us, protects us, and sustains us. And Indeed, these are good things that we should thank him for. Uh, we should thank him for everything that he has given us. But in this passage, I don't think that the emphasis is upon those types of things, but it's rather emphasis upon giving thanks for the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Look at verse 12 in its entirety. Verse 12 says, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What is this inheritance that Paul is speaking about? Paul here is alluding to the exodus from Egypt and the inheritance of the promised land. But he does not mean that God has given the church another earthly land with physical boundaries. The inheritance of the promised land of the Old Testament was only a shadow of our true inheritance, the inheritance of our heavenly country. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the people of God have an eternal and heavenly inheritance. God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the true promised land, the kingdom of heaven, He has qualified us to do so by his son living in our place. He has qualified us by punishing our sins in the death of Christ. So as Paul goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God the Father has done all of the work of our redemption through his own son. We have a share in this inheritance now by being filled with the Holy Spirit as a down payment for what is to come. Notice that this prayer is focused on and it's moving toward what God has done in Jesus Christ. All of our prayers should move toward and be oriented around what God has done in Jesus Christ. If we're going to pray and ask that our life would be pleasing to God, the foundation of that prayer must be redemption in Christ. There's no life that can be pleasing to God if it is not first redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you thankful for what you have done in Jesus Christ. Thankful that you have sent your son, the perfect man, the second Adam, to live in our place, to live a perfect life in our place, and to die in our place. We thank you for the redemption that we have in Him and ask that